you're a bit slack. Um, <laughs> now, I'm not saying there isn't something about spiritual gifts elsewhere. There is. Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians talks about the regulation of spiritual gifts within the church fellowship. But this morning's passage is a very significant passage of teaching about spiritual gifts. And uh, we'll read the first 11 verses. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters. When you read brothers in the New Testament, it's not wrong to add the sisters because the Greek word for brothers is much closer to the Greek word for sisters than the English word for brothers is to the English word for sisters and it was customary to use the male term in an inclusive sense on many occasions. Now there may be exceptions but the context will gen generally straighten that out for you. We'll start again. Now about spiritual gifts brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another miraculous powers. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between Spirits. To another speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit and he gives them to each one just as he determines. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the inspired word of God in our hands and we pray that the Holy Spirit who gave it to us in the first place may be with us this morning to lead us into the truth of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you six truths about spiritual gifts from this passage. The first is they are very important. I do not want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. So I think Paul would be happy for us to be talking about this subject this morning. He didn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant and I don't think he wants the Budrum Gospel Chapel members to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. One of my favourite preachers is Stuart Briscoe. He's a great expositor, very contemporary, quite humorous. I remember once he was at Mount Tambourine and uh, at the end of the convention they handed him an envelope on the platform and his response was, I've always wanted one of these. <laughs> he had a very fresh way of speaking. For about 20 years or more, he was the pastor of the Elmbrook Chapel in Wisconsin. And one day after a service, 
at which many people would have been present, a newspaper reporter saw him in the distance and called out, Are you gifted? And he called back, Yes. And the newspaper reporter said, I think you're arrogant. And he called back, I think you're ignorant. <laughs> well, there are many Christians who are ignorant about spiritual gifts. And this passage is to dispel our ignorance. So it's right that we should be talking about it this morning. But some of you got a bit nervous when we read that. You know, tongues and prophecy and interpretation of tongues. Healings. Some of you are scared of this passage. No need to be scared. It's God's word. And we need to listen to it. So let's do that this morning. The second truth is the divine origin of spiritual gifts. Notice the highlighted words. Spirit, Lord, God. That's a Trinitarian passage, I think. It's a Trinitarian passage. There are all sorts of different gifts, but the Holy Spirit behind true spiritual gifts. The Lord Jesus Christ is behind true spiritual gifts. And God himself, Father, is also they are of divine origin. You will not get a spiritual gift by doing a course on evangelism or going to a theological college and learning how to be a pastor. No amount of training will make you what God has not made you. Now that is not to say that we should not make every effort to learn skills and the word of God and theology. And I want to commend you, those of you who are capable of doing some hard study. Don't neglect the serious study of God's word. And learn all you can about how to do evangelism. We're all meant to do it. You know, the absence of a gift does not absolve us from responsibility. There is a gift of encouragement. Some have it in a very special way. Barnabas, I think, had the gift of encouragement. His name means son of encouragement. His mother and father didn't give him that name. His parents gave it to him, or rather the apostles, because encouragement just oozed out of him. Now, we're all meant to encourage Hebrews 10 says, let us encourage one another and so much the more as we see the day appearing. We're all meant to encourage. There's a, there's a gift of giving. But we're all meant to contribute to the work of the church. There is a gift of evangelism, but we're all meant to share the gospel. So don't think, oh, I don't have a gift in that area. Oh, no, that doesn't absolve you. It may determine how you are placed in ministry within the church and beyond it. I wouldn't want somebody to become a full-time evangelist who didn't have the gift of evangelism. But I would want every Christian to be engaged in evangelism. I wouldn't want everybody to be standing up here on Sunday morning teaching the word of God. And yet every mature believer should be able to teach. Hebrews chapter 5 says that these believers have been 
Christians for a long time and the writer says, by now you should be teaching. But they were still on the bottle. But the ability to teach doesn't necessarily mean that we have a gift of teaching that should be used in corporate activities. But there's nothing to stop you teaching one another. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs and also one-on-one -on -one and in small groups. So the leadership need to be very discerning as to how they use the giftedness of people within the church and how they use those who aren't gifted but who should be working in every area, gifted or not. So their divine origin. Now these two verses, what are they doing there? I skipped over. Did any of you notice that I skipped over those verses? I went from verse 1 to verse 4. You should have been jumping up and down. You're being selective, I know. What are these two verses there for? Because they don't seem to have anything to do with spiritual gifts. Just cast your eye over them. They seem to be out of place, but they're not. We've just read that spiritual gifts are of divine origin. Now, how will we know if what we are hearing is of divine origin or not? And these two verses tell us. We listen to what is being said. If someone is blaspheming, if someone is undermining the character and the person of Jesus, then no matter how much they pro may profess to be gifted, they are not operating under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus is magnified, oh, you don't need to doubt the source. The Holy Spirit's job is to magnify Jesus. There's a similar passage in 1 John 4 along the lines of content determining source. Say that again. Content determines source. In 1 John chapter 4, John says, Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Now, the content is wrong. So the spirit is not the Holy Spirit. Did you hear the text? Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. The content is wrong. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's what Christmas is about. The incarnation, the coming of God in human form. Now there were people in John's day who probably under Gnostic influence believed that matter was evil and that a good God, a holy God, would not combine himself with physical flesh, which in their view was evil. And so they created a Jesus who was a bit of a phantom. He didn't have solid flesh. They were wrong. If the incarnation didn't occur, friends, we're in big, big trouble. Now why do I mention the first John passage? I'm going off the track a little bit. It's parallel to this thought that content determines source. But I've known people 
who have misused the John Pert passage, particularly in areas where there is suspicion about the source of a spiritual gift. Now, I'm not going to get into any arguments with people, but I'm going to tell you where I stand in relation to the more controversial gifts in this passage, and most of them are, by the way. Most of the gifts in this passage have a certain miraculous, otherworldly sense about them, most of them. Some of them, we're not even sure what they mean. I'm not sure whether a word of wisdom is something supernatural, like Peter in uh, Acts 5, knowing, a word of knowledge, knowing that Ananias and Sapphira had uh, lied with respect to the sale of that property. That could have been a word of knowledge, could have been. But these people, and there are plenty of people who feel that everybody who speaks in tongues, for example, has probably got an evil spirit. There are people like that. They have got a very hard line. And so they are suspicious of the source of the spiritual gift. And here's one way in which some of those people test the gift. They get the person to speak in the tongue, inverted commas, in their view, and then they ask the spirit... Do you confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh? Because they believe that's the test. You test the spirit by means of this question. Now, I have some concerns about that method. I think it's faulty. I think what John was saying is this. If somebody comes into your house, church, and he starts to teach that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh... Don't give him any space. The content of what he is saying indicates that the source of his teaching is not from God. In other words, you listen to the speaker who professes to be speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit. You don't talk to some spirit, be it good or bad, inside the man. Are you with me? Still with me? All right. But I think there's a more serious reason. You see, I'm told in James chapter 3 that the demons believe and tremble. Oh, there's no unbelievers in hell, friends. None whatever. And if you expected the demons so-called behind somebody's so-called gift of speaking in tongues to tell the truth and you ask them, do you confess, tell the truth now, that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, what will it say? Yes. And what will that lead the counsellor to believe? That this is the Holy Spirit and they will be wrong. They will be deceived. No, you don't talk to some spirit behind. You listen to what is being taught. And that means we should be discerning. When you listen to people like me or Bill Ford or whoever, we're fallible. And you check it out against the word of God. But let's get back to chapter 12. The third truth about spiritual gifts is their dynamic nature. The words in yellow are, to my uh, view, the best definition of a spiritual gift in the Bible. A manifestation of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit 
manifesting himself or being manifested when a true spiritual gift is in operation. Now, let's look at some of the gifts that we know of in the Bible and let's define them in the light of this dynamic phrase. What is the gift of evangelism? It is the Holy Spirit manifesting himself through an individual who is in a right relationship with him in such a way that consistently over time when that person shares the gospel with other people, people respond to it and are born again. That's how you can know if you've got the gift of evangelism. Doesn't mean every time you share the gospel somebody will be converted. But if you claim to have the gift of evangelism and you've been preaching the gospel for 40 years and you don't know of anybody who's ever come to Christ through your preaching, I doubt it. How do I know Billy Graham has the gift of evangelism? Because all over the world there are thousands upon thousands of people who when he shared the gospel responded to it and their lives were changed. What is the gift of teaching? The gift of teaching is, what am I going to say next? The Holy Spirit. You see, we sometimes think that a gift is a something. You have the gift of encouragement, you have that something, and you have the gift of faith, that's your something. No. A spiritual gift is more a someone than a something. It's the manifestation of not something that we have, but of someone who lives within us, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So what is the gift of teaching? It is the Holy Spirit manifesting himself through an individual who is in a right relationship with him, such that over time, consistently, when the word of God is shared, people not only understand it, but are convicted by it and changed by it as they respond appropriately to it. What is the gift of encouragement? It is the... What am I going to say next? Well, a couple of you are getting the idea. It is the Holy Spirit working, manifesting himself through an individual who is in a right relationship with him so that he, the comforter, the exhorter, the encourager whom Jesus promised, manifests himself in that way so that people with burdens find those burdens lifted. And this is how you can know what your spiritual gift is. By the effectiveness born of the Holy Spirit in terms of what you are doing. If you claim to have the gift of encouragement and people increase their dosage of Valium after you've ministered to them, then we need to doubt that you might have the gift of encouragement. If you think you've got the gift of teaching and people go out with their heads in a whirl saying, whatever was that about, I haven't got a clue what he's talking about, well, maybe think again. Well, we won't give any more definitions. I simply want to stress this, that it is about a relationship with God so that he can manifest himself by his spirit in a consistent way. That's an important word, consistent way, over time. Not on every occasion, but consistently and effectively. Now this verse also teaches us about the beneficial purpose of spiritual gifts. They are given for the common good. 
It's interesting that in the three chapters that Paul wrote, that's this one, 1 Corinthians 12, the other 12, which was Romans 12, and the first four, which was Ephesians 4, he wrote all those books. It's interesting that in each of them, he not only speaks about gifts, but about the body. And that's a helpful reminder that the gifts that God gives are not for the purpose, uh, the personal aggrandizement of the person who has the gift, but for the benefit of other people. Paul loves the illustration of the body, and I think it's a great one too, because you cut it with you wherever you go. You can refer to the body. And in our bodies, we've got a diversity of gifts, gift of hearing, gift of seeing, gift of walking, and so on. But all of those parts of the body have their giftedness for the benefit of the whole body. I sometimes ask people, what, uh, what do you use when you read a book? And people say, their eyes. But hang on, have you ever tried turning the pages of a book with your eyes? It's difficult. No, your hands and your eyes work together when you read a book. And when we walk, our feet are not just serving our feet. Our feet are taking our whole body home or through the door. Every part of the body is serving the whole body. Our eyes don't have the gift of seeing so that they can have private little TV shows. No, it's so that our feet won't bump into things and so we can find things with our hands that we've lost. They serve the whole body. And if you have a gift, it's to be shared and be of benefit to everybody Now, look at the wide diversity. To one there is given through the Spirit, the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. Well, that's quite a list. And you'll probably look through that and say, oh, well, I don't know anybody in our church who's got any of those gifts. Message of wisdom. No, there are, um, <laughs> and so on. Now let's pause here because there are some controversial issues here. Some people think that this is an exhaustive list I have a neighbour. He lives across the way from me. He used to be a Pentecostal pastor. And uh, he thinks that these are, these nine gifts in this passage are the only nine spiritual gifts in the, the New Testament. Now he's wrong for a couple of reasons. It's not the only list of gifts for a start. If you go to Romans 12, you'll see others. Or he's got an answer for that. He says those other gifts in Romans 12, for example, they are things that non-Christians have as well as Christians. Now, he's right that there are some significant leaders, for example, who are not Christians, and leadership is a gift within the church. And there are very encouraging people actually outside of the church. You probably know some of them. And so there are many things that are true of non-Christians and also of Christians. But he's wrong if he wants to push that point too hard because 
I don't know of any non-Christian evangelists, and yet there is a gift of evangelism. So it doesn't fit. And here's the most important thing. Their leadership, their encouragement, is not a manifestation of the Spirit in the sense of this passage that we are considering today. There are people whom I know who are excellent teachers of mathematics or chemistry or physics or computing or whatever. It doesn't mean that when they get converted, they automatically have the gift of teaching. Is everybody clear on that? Because here's a mistake that we can make. We can think, well, I've been to the teacher's college. I've got a diploma of education, so I expect to be uh, regularly teaching the word of God. Hang on. Do you have the spiritual gift of teaching? Is that the way in which the Holy Spirit has determined to manifest himself through you? Do not assume that what you could do as a non-Christian is the way God is going to use you as a Christian. It doesn't always work out that way. Henry Martin was a, a brilliant mathematician. God called him to the Middle East and he ended up translating the Bible into Persian. Uh, J. Uh, o. Fraser was a, a wonderful musician. God called him to the back blocks of China. His book Beyond the Ranges, or Behind the Ranges, tells of his ministry there. One day a man came to Major Ian Thomas and wondered how God could use him as a pianist and he was told, well, if God calls you to Brazil, you're going to look a bit funny carrying a grand piano on your back as you go through the Amazon jungle. Oh no, you might even be a doctor. Don't assume that God is going to use you as a medical missionary. He may say, put that on hold. I want you to be a Bible translator or a Bible teacher. We can't tell God how he's got to use us because we went to university and studied this, that or the other. Not a bit of it. He may use you that way. He may not. There is wide diversity. You need to read those other chapters. I rather like the Peter passage. It's very short, only two verses. But he has these two phrases. If your gift is speaking, speak of the, as the oracles of God. King James Version. And if your speech is serving, do it with the strength that God gives you so that he will be glorified. And in simple terms, you can divide spiritual gifts into those which are speaking gifts and those which are serving gifts. Now, there's overlap, of course. But evangelism, teaching, and so on, involve speaking. But the gift of helps, which is mentioned in, uh, later on in this chapter, that I think has been misused uh, it's often regarded as the miscellaneous category, you know, the odds and sods. The people who can't discover a spiritual gift that's uh, in the other lists and so they make nice pumpkin scones, so that's their gift of health, you know what I mean? No, that's demeaning. In some cases, there's no certainty as to what some of these gifts mean. The gift of administration in the New Testament is not necessarily administration as we understand it in business terms. So we just need to be a bit careful there. But I will say this, that you are all gifted if you are believers. And that's why we should 
not be afraid to say that we're charismatic. I'm charismatic. I have a charisma. I got it when I received Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the charisma of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you're all charismatic. But as one lady said, I'm charismatic, but I'm not glossolalic, meaning she didn't speak in tongues, but she was gifted. And uh, Stuart Briscoe was not being arrogant when he said yes to the question, are you gifted? He was being honest. It's false humility and it's dishonouring to God when he says that we are gifted for us to say that we're not. And sometimes it's the flesh. Oh, you're a very gifted evangelist. Oh, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. We just want to be told three or four times that we're gifted, you see, and we can, we can elicit extra affirmations by denying that we have the gift. It's like Yehudi Menuhin denying that he's a talented violinist. I mean, that's just a downright lie. Paul does say we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. But that also implies that we should not think more lowly of ourselves than we ought to think. We should accept the way God has made us and give him the thanks. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 it says, What do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Why then do you glory as if you had not received it? That's the danger. Pride. But when it's the Holy Spirit, then there's no room for pride. Not us at all. All right, let's uh, move on. I'll just say one other word about this diversity. I think that Pentecostal neighbour is wrong. Paul is probably selecting these to make a point. He wants to stress the wide diversity and so he gives a very wide list. But there are other gifts mentioned in chapter 4 of Ephesians and in Romans chapter 12. And it's possible, and here I'm going to be very tentative, I'll hold this with an open hand, it's possible that there are spiritual gifts which aren't listed in any of the lists in the New Testament. Um, gifts that were not needed in the first century, but which are needed in the 21st century. Perhaps gifts associated with technology. You have somebody here, Fiona, you know Fiona? Well, Fiona may have been given the ability to create websites that will proclaim the gospel. It may be that there's a gift of teaching or encouragement or whatever associated with that technological ability, but let us recognise that God may do some things that we're not aware of. All right, we come to number six. Their sovereign distribution... All these are the work of one and the same Spirit and he gives them to each one just as he determines. Where's the word sovereignty come into it? Well, a sovereign can do whatever he likes. God is sovereign. God the Father is sovereign. God the Son is sovereign. And God the Holy Spirit is sovereign. To put it simply... The Spirit is the boss. He can do what he likes, when he likes, to whomsoever he likes. Now this is the position that I take, friends, in relation to the uh, <coughs> disputable matters that we've read of this morning. And I believe it's theologically correct and I think it's wise. The Holy Spirit can decide to do something 
in Brazil that he's not doing in Australia, if he wants to. He can do something at a church down the road that he's not doing in your church, if he wants to. He can do something for an individual in this church that nobody else is experiencing, if he wants to. He can do whatever he likes. Now, the hardline people like I've mentioned earlier, the ones who think that there's a demon behind every occurrence of speaking in tongues, need to be very, very careful indeed. Very, very careful, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Let me tell you a sad story, I think. I was in a, a church, quite a large church, and I was leading worship. I find leading worship is just about as much work as preparing a sermon, really, if you do it well. Anyway, I had arranged for four microphones to be placed all over the auditorium. And I invited people to just come out and thank the Lord for saving them, just to praise God for his grace. And people came out. This microphone, that microphone. And I think more people had something to say to the Lord by way of thanksgiving than in 99% of the open worship service that I've been in over decades. Oh, it's grieved me. It's grieved me over the years when you can sit there for an hour and a half and only three people get up to thank the Lord. Oh, something wrong. Something wrong. But here, maybe a dozen, 15 people. Oh, I came under fire afterwards. Not just because some ladies got up and said, Thank you, Lord. That's another subject. <laughs> it's okay for ladies to sing a solo thanking the Lord, but they can't do it without music. Well, that, anyway, that's another subject. <laughs> Naughty. <laughs> so let me just say that I came under fire because. Somebody thought, oh, somebody might have broken out in tongues. I know a man in that very same church. I think he probably speaks in tongues. He's been a missionary. He's one of the godliest people in the congregation. If there's a prayer meeting before a service, he's at it. Gracious. Godly. And this is my warning to those who take a hard line and suspect a demon. To suspect that somebody who's given his life to serve God in cross-cultural contexts and who's prayerful and holy, to say that that's a demon is just a slight upon God. It really is, friends. I remember a girl from one of the assemblies in Brisbane. I was at Burley Heads Camp and she just told me that she started to speak in tongues. And what do you do there? Well, I know what some people would do. Oh, you need to renounce that. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I would like to ask some questions. What was it like before you had this so-called gift? Let's suppose they say, oh, well, oh, I was always slack in having my devotions and I never witnessed, you know, I was too scared to witness and oh, I didn't have much to say to God when there was an opportunity to worship. You know, I've won three people to Christ this week and I just can't wait to get up in the morning to read my Bible and I'm praying for an hour or two every day. If that's the devil, friend, then I just, I've got the wrong end of the stick. I am totally up the creek. 
Now, I'm going to give you a passage of scripture which I think is balanced. And if there's one thing I want to be is a, a balanced Christian who is true to the word. You know there are people, and they're very wrong. They will say things like this. If you haven't spoken in tongues, then you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You're not baptised in the Spirit. That is wrong. How do I know it's wrong? Because of this passage. Look at this. To one is given through the Spirit the message of To another something else. To another something else. They want everybody to be receiving this. Now, they've got a subtle way of getting around it. They say, well, there's a difference between the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's rubbish. They say that the initial evidence is speaking in tongues, but the gift is something that is done in church with an interpretation so that other people can uh, get the message. Well, Paul said, I speak with tongues more than you all. I do it in private and I'll do it in public if there's an interpreter. Now, I'm not pushing tongues. I don't speak in tongues, friends, and I'm not pushing it. And I certainly don't think that you have to speak in tongues to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. And we'll see next week, when we look at verse 13, the very uh, verse after this, chapter 12, verse 12, actually, um, and 13, we will see that the baptism of the Spirit has been misinterpreted. But I want to say this, that... God is sovereign. The Holy Spirit is sovereign. He can do whatever he likes. To whomsoever he likes. Whenever he likes. If he wants to dry up certain of these gifts in the first century, so be it. So be it. If he wants never to give any of them again, so be it. If he wants to bring one of these gifts back for a fortnight in Cambodia, so be it. He can do what he likes, friends. And we cannot tell him what he has to do and how he has to do it. Let me give you an example of the sovereignty of the Spirit. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, that's verse 15, it's speaking of John the Baptist. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Now, I have taught pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, for years. And I can't fit that into any of my teaching. <laughs> except this verse. Except this verse. The sovereignty of the Spirit. And you will remember, when the pregnant Mary met the pregnant Elizabeth, that Elizabeth said, the baby leapt in my womb. It was as if that little embryonic John the Baptist recognised the embryonic Jesus Christ, and he had an experience, and it might have been the experience that was predicted in verse 15, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Now, he wasn't even born, let alone born again. Now, I cannot fit that in. But you, but you see, you can't put God in a box. You can't tell God what he has to do and when he has to do it and so on. But that's what we've done, and I believe that we have made a big error. Anyway, I want to move on to a short passage which is balanced. We need discernment. We need discernment lest we regard something which is not of God as if it were of God. And I think that is happening. We need discernment lest we regard something that is of God as not of God. 
They're both serious things. Here's the passage. It's 1 Thessalonians 5. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. King James Version. Quench not the Spirit. The Greek in that passage is the word from which we get asbestos. So you can see the connection here, can't you? Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Here's a way that you could put the Spirit's fire out. If you treated what was a genuine prophecy with contempt. Now, I don't know whether I've heard a genuine prophecy. Very easy to fake. I could go to a Pentecostal meeting, stand up and say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, and then give a little devotional. And some people would come up, oh, wonderful prophecy. No, I made that up. It wasn't a sudden inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But, I don't know whether Bill will agree with me here, but it's possible that preachers and teachers of the word have unbeknownst to themselves sometimes been led by the Holy Spirit to say something which was not in their notes, but it was a word for somebody from God, and that may well have been a prophecy. It was not prefaced by some kind of formula to give it authenticity. Its authenticity was the effect that it had upon somebody. You know what I'm talking about, Bill? And so I don't discount the Holy Spirit's sovereign right to give the gift of prophecy if he wishes to do so and to treat such a gift with contempt is to disobey the first command here to put out the Spirit's fire, to quench the Holy Spirit. It is noticed that when revival breaks out, sometimes the Holy Spirit acts in ways which we're not used to in times of non-revival. And if you want revival, you may need to have a pretty open mind because you may find that God the Holy Spirit will operate in ways that you are not expecting. And the danger is that conservative Christians can throw a wet blanket over what God is doing and quench the Spirit. I have a feeling I told you this story on a previous occasion, but you weren't all here, so I'll tell it again. There was a, a missionary in West Africa in the Ivory Coast her name was Frances Staniford. She and her husband laboured there for, for many, many years. And at one point they did experience revival. And she had a photograph of African women under the influence of the Holy Spirit who were looking up to heaven. And I don't know the words they were using, but the glory of God. They saw the glory of God and they were almost shielding their faces because of this glory. And the missionaries couldn't see it. But a photograph was taken and somehow, amazingly, the camera picked up this light in the corner of the picture. And it was taken to a photographic expert and he couldn't explain it in terms of a hole in the lens or in the box camera or whatever it was. And it's possible that here was something which the African believers in their simple faith could see and experience, and the missionaries, if they're not careful, could be in danger of quenching the Spirit. Oh, you can't do that! No. You can't tell a sovereign spirit what he can and can't do. The third little balancing command here 
is test everything. Not in that phony way that I mentioned from 1 John 4, no. But don't be gullible. Don't be sucked in. Now, two things will happen when you test something. If it's good, hang on to it. If it's not good, get rid of it. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Five little commands which would keep us balanced. Now, I may have said something this morning here which you didn't agree with. That's all right. You didn't agree with it? You come and tell me. Don't start gossiping around here. Say, oh, he's gone off the rails. No. That's the devil's work to do that. If I'm wrong, you tell me. And if it's in the scriptures, I will straighten myself out with God's help. I tell you what, I'm not wrong when I talk about the sovereignty of the Spirit. He's God. Everything you can say of God the Father, you can say of the Holy Spirit. All the attributes of God are in the Holy Spirit. And the challenge for us in this, this fellowship here is that each of us will discover the gift or gifts which God has for us and will begin to use them for the common good, for the benefit of the whole body. Do you want this church to grow? You do? Okay. Well, Ephesians 4.16 says this. The whole body grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. You got that? The body suffers when members who are gifted neglect their gift. Now, we're going to finish with a song. I don't know if you know it. But I think it's a great one. Let me say a little bit about songs. Oh, just give me a minute. You have to eat your cup, drink your cup of tea a bit faster today. Yeah. <laughs> I'm finding songs a great benefit in my devotional life. And I would encourage you to get a good hymn book and copy some of those hymns out. Memorise some of them because they've got beautiful prayers. And here's a lovely prayer that we could pray every day. Blessed Holy Spirit, live through me today. I would be like Jesus, pure in every way. Guide me. Teach me ever what I ought to know. Fill me with thy fullness till I overflow. Would you like that prayer to be answered? Yes. Well, you know that verse, you have not because you ask not. So we need to pray this prayer. Now some of you are nervous about this song because it's addressed to the Holy Spirit. Well, so is Spirit of the Living God fall afresh on me. And most of you have sung that song before. You go to any good hymn book and you'll find a whole section on the Holy Spirit and many of them will begin with things like come heavenly dove, come holy paraclete, etc, etc, etc. I don't think all of our prayers should be the Holy Spirit at all. Basically the biblical prayers are to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. But that doesn't mean you can't pray to Jesus. I can tell people brought up in Christian's homes because at 55 years of age they're still praying, Dear Lord Jesus, which was the way they were taught to pray when they were little. You, is that true of you? Okay. <laughs> I think he hears those prayers. And that's why many children are not sure when they were converted as they get older.
and sometimes it's a source of concern to them because from their mother's knee they've loved Jesus and they've asked for his forgiveness every day and they've prayed to him and thanked him for dying for them. Did he hear those prayers? Of course he heard those prayers. Suffer little children to come to me. Anyway, I'm getting carried away here. <laughs> All right. Here is the song. How many know it, by the way? Whoa, one person. We should sing a duet. All right. Follow the words. You're going to learn this before you go to morning tea, so you better learn fast. It's very easy. Blessed Holy Spirit, live through me today and guide me, teach me ever what I ought to know. The music is very similar at those points. So follow as I play. Oops. Coming back to anybody? A few. Let's try it. Ready? Go. Blessed Holy Spirit, lift me today. I only know Jesus through everywhere. I need to teach me I'd like you to learn the words, learn the song, and then in your devotions, it gets you in the spirit to read the word and to pray when you sing a song like this. And what a way to start the day. So let's stand to sing. We'll sing it through twice. Blessed Holy Spirit. Let's sing it prayerfully now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give gifts to men and to women. And we pray that you will distribute them sovereignly within this group so that there's a balance and so that the body is built up and grows. And we ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>